0: Paul tells us that we are to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, but just what is a living sacrifice? How does it differ from the dead sacrifices of the Old Testament and Jesus' substitutionary sacrifice for us? <music> Welcome to the Bible Study Hour, a radio and internet broadcast with Dr. James Boyce, preparing you to think and act biblically. Our sacrifice is not one of death or to make atonement for another. Our sacrifice, a living sacrifice, involves our bodies, presented alive unto God to bring Him glory. Listen now as Dr. Boyce describes the nature and qualities of a living sacrifice,
1: wholly pleasing to our God. We're studying the twelfth chapter of Romans. It's the part in Romans at which Paul begins to apply the doctrine that he's developed earlier in the book to various areas of our daily lives. And the point at which he begins is sacrifice. It's not where we begin; that's where he begins. And if we're going to understand what the Christian life is to be, we have to begin there too. Sacrifice of one person for another is a very moving thing, of course. Not long ago, I reread parts of Charles Dickens' great historical novel, A Tale of Two Cities. You've read that, you know that the two cities are London and Paris and that it takes place in the days of the French Revolution wherein so many thousands of people, most of them presumably innocent, were being led to the guillotine and executed by a revolutionary council. The plot is complex, of course. Charles Dickens plots are always fairly complex, but it comes to a never to be forgotten climax when one character in the novel, the disreputable one, his name is Sidney Carlton, substitutes himself for his friend Charles Darney in the Bastille prison. Darney is smuggled out, and Sidney is there in his place, and so Darney goes free and Sidney Carlton goes to the gallows, to the scaffold in his friend's place. Very end of the novel, there are these moving lines. They're in the mouth of the one who has given himself for his friend, and they go like this, to the far, far better thing I do than I have ever done. It was a far, far better place I go to than I have ever known. Every time I read that, I moved by it, and though I've read parts of that novel and the ending of it many times. It still moves me to tears. That's a very good reason for that, about the most moving thing that you and I can know that touches us deeply and leaves us standing in something like a holy awe is when one person gives his or her life to save another. That's what Jesus Christ did, of course, and because he did that for us, he requires that we do the same, though in a different sense. Jesus said on one occasion, greater love has no man than this, than that a man lay down his life for his friends, and he did that literally for us. He died on the cross, taking the punishment of our sin upon him in order that we might be saved and live forevermore. Now you see, because he has done that for us, he requires that we also give ourselves for him. What Paul is talking about in Romans 12, when he says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. There's a great deal of difference between the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for us and our sacrifice of ourselves for Him. He gave Himself for us literally unto death and as a substitutionary sacrifice for sin. He took the punishment of our sin upon Himself. That's the very essence of the gospel, and we don't do that. Our sacrifice is not like Jesus Christ in any respect like that. We do not die in a substitutionary way for anybody else, and our sacrifice of ourselves, however we conceive that, has no atoning significance whatsoever. But it is like the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, in this respect at least, that we, first of all, are the ones who do it not done for us. We have to do it ourselves. And secondly, we do it by presenting our bodies. Now, we looked at this matter of sacrifice the last time. We're beginning to study this verse and do it carefully because every one of these words is important. What we want to do in this study is look a bit deeper at the nature of the sacrifice and to see how we actually are to do it. Now, the first obvious thing that we should think about is that it is to be a living sacrifice rather than a dead one. That was a novel thing in Paul's day, of course. In Paul's day, all of the sacrifices were dead sacrifices. That's just what a sacrifice meant. The worshiper would bring an animal to the priest. The priest would receive it. There would be an exchange in which the worshiper would confess his sin in the presence of the priest. The priest would confess it over the head of the animal. It's sort of a way of transferring it symbolically to the animal. And then a priest would take the animal to the altar and kill it, its blood would be poured out, and then the body would be burnt upon the altar. It taught a number of very important lessons. It taught the wages of sin is death. The soul that sins, it must die. That's a biblical principle. It also taught the principle of substitution, because, of course, the animal wasn't guilty. The worshiper was the one that was guilty, but the animal died in the worshiper's stead. But it was always a dead sacrifice. See, Paul says something quite novel and quite different here. We've gotten familiar with it because we've heard this so often. But Paul, by the Holy Spirit and a divinely given burst of creativity, says, Yes, and you who are Christians are to sacrifice, but not a dead sacrifice. It's to be a living sacrifice. What you are to do is give the Lord Jesus Christ your life. Now, he says that very clearly in other places. I think of 2 Corinthians 5.15, We are no longer to live for ourselves, but rather for him who died for us and was raised again. Let's think of that a little bit more, a living sacrifice. What life are we talking about here? Are we talking about merely animal life or intelligent life or the kind of life we had before we came to Jesus Christ, which if we understand the Bible correctly is actually a living death? It's not that at all. One of the great writers of the past generation is a man named Robert Candlish. He was a pastor in Scotland, one of the great Scottish preachers. He lived from 1806 to 1873, and he left us some marvelous studies of the Bible, exegetical studies. It's what makes them so good. And one of these sets of studies is on Romans 12, a whole book just on this chapter. And when he begins to deal with this matter of a living sacrifice, he asks that question. He says, what kind of life are we talking about here? And then he answers it. Here's what he says. Not merely animal life, the life that's common to all moving creatures, or not merely in addition to that intelligent life, the life that characterizes beings capable of thought and voluntary choice, no rather spiritual life, life in the highest sense, the very life which those on whose behalf the sacrifice of atonement is presented lost when they fell into that state that made the sacrifice of atonement necessary. And what that is saying, among other things, is that if you are going to make the sacrifice that Paul is calling upon here, you've got to be a Christian. In other words, you have to have the spiritual life that comes to you from God himself in order that by the grace of God you might give it back to him. Only a Christian can do that. The world can sacrifice money or time, world can even give its life in this sense. Somebody in the world can take up a religious vocation. Unless you're a new creature in Jesus Christ, unless you've been made alive by him, you cannot give back to him that spiritual life, which alone is able to serve him. And as a matter of fact, unless you're alive in Jesus Christ, you don't even want to. The very first thing that is mentioned here, you see, when Paul is talking about sacrifice is that it's to be living. Now, there's a second thing that needs to be said, and he emphasizes that as well. This giving of ourselves to God involves our bodies. Present your bodies is what he says. Now, what does that mean? If you study the Bible carefully and you use commentators, as I do, to see what's been said beforehand, and you go back, you'll find that many of the older commentators stress that when Paul says bodies, he obviously means all we are. One who did that very clearly is John Calvin. He said, by bodies, he means not only our skin and bones, but the totality of which we are composed. Well, that's true. One can hardly debate that. Certainly, we are to give everything we are or can ever be to God. But if you also read the commentators, you'll find that most of the more recent commentators, and I'm talking about the evangelical ones and and the ones that are very careful in dealing with the words of the Bible, say it's just a little bit too easy to handle it that way. That is true, but Paul actually uses the word bodies. And so when he talks about bodies, he's stressing that, and you just can't pass over it quite that easily. Let me give you some examples. Leon Morris is one of the best of the modern commentators, still living. He says this, Paul surely expected Christians to offer to God not only their bodies, but their whole selves. But we should bear in mind that the body is very important in the Christian understanding of things. And then he brings in a lot of texts. We'll talk about the importance of the body. Our bodies may be implements of righteousness, Romans 6.13, and members of Christ, 1 Corinthians 6.15. Body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians 6.19. Paul can speak of being holy both in body and in spirit, 1 Corinthians 7.34, and so on. He knows that There are many possibilities for evil in the body, but he also knows that the body may be presented to Jesus Christ for righteousness. Now, Robert Haldane, another commentator, puts it this way, it is of the body that the apostle here speaks, and it's not proper to extract out of his language more than it contains. What this shows is the importance of serving God with the body as well as with the soul. Now, Paul doesn't explain exactly what he means by serving God with the body here in Romans 12. This is a very condensed portion of his theology, but we're not in the dark about that because he does talk about it in other places. As a matter of fact, he's already talked about it in Romans. You think back to the sixth chapter, you'll recall that that's what he's doing there, verses 12 through 14. He's talking about the body, and he makes very clear there that he's not talking about the body in some metaphysical or abstract sense. But actually, he's talking about the very parts of our body. It's the word he uses. Here's what those verses say. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. For sin shall not be your master. You are not under law, but under grace." Now that's the first point in Romans at which the Apostle Paul began to talk about sanctification and what he stresses is the presenting of our bodies. Here in the 12th chapter, when he begins to develop this in a more formal way and apply it to all aspects of our lives, it's exactly the point he picks up with again. What he's saying, you see, is that our bodies can be instruments of evil But they can also be instruments of good, and in order to be instruments of good, we have to give the parts of our body to God to be used by Him. Now, let's think about that. Let's think about each one of those things. I did it when we were studying Romans 6, and it's helpful to review exactly what that means. Where do we start? Well, let's start with our minds. The reason I start with our minds is that that's where Paul starts. It's not where we would normally start. We tend to be a bit platonic when we think of our minds, and somehow we separate that from our bodies, as the Greeks did. The Greeks spoke about mind and matter, the body was matter, didn't really matter, but what really mattered was the mind, the spirit, and we tend to think that way. So we think whatever our bodies do doesn't really count as long as we're thinking good thoughts now Paul didn't think that way, and the Bible doesn't think that way. And and Paul begins with the mind right here in Romans 12, because look, we're talking about our bodies in verse one, but verse two says, "Don't conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind." Well, that's the point at which he begins the renewing of our minds. That's the first body part that has to be given to God. Now, have you ever thought that what you do with your minds is going to determine? To a very large extent, almost a dominant extent, the kind of Christian you'll become. Whether you'll actually be like Jesus Christ and serve him, or whether you won't. If you fill your mind with all of the products of our secular culture, well, you will become secular. It's as simple as that. If you spend your free hours reading trashy pop novels, you'll become like the characters in the novels. That'll become your goal, your priority. You want to be like them. If you spend all your time watching television, you'll become like the scoundrels that we see on television. We see more scoundrels on television all the time. Some of them not imaginary characters, some of them living people. That's what's going to happen if that's what you do. But you see, what you have to do instead is fill your mind with something spiritual. How practical can you be? People say to me, let's get practical. Well, there's practical. You spend all your time watching television, that's what you'll become like. If you spend your time reading the Bible, you'll become more and more like Jesus Christ. When I was talking about this before, I gave a little goal in each of these areas, and the goal I gave when I was talking about our mind was this. Very simple, easy to follow. For every secular book you read, make it your goal also to read one good Christian book, a book that can stretch your mind spiritually and challenge you to be like Jesus Christ. Well, let's talk about our eyes and our ears the mind is a part of the body by which we receive impressions and think about them and remember them, but the impressions come to us through our eyes and our ears, and so these have to be given over to Jesus Christ as a living sacrifice as well. Sociologists tell us, I suppose these figures change from year to year, but sociologists have told us that by the age of 21, the average young person has been bombarded by 300,000 commercial messages, all arguing from the assumption that personal gratification is the dominant goal in life. Television and our other modern means of communication put the acquisition of things before godliness. As a matter of fact, the world doesn't mention godliness at all. Now, if you're going to grow in godliness— What you have to do is begin to absorb something other than what the world is giving. I'm not advocating a certain kind of evangelical monasticism where we withdraw from the world, though I will say this, it is better to withdraw from the world than perish in it. What I am saying is that if you're going to go into the world, which you have been sent into the world by Jesus Christ, that's part of the Great Commission, you have to go being fed on spiritual things if you're to make any difference in the world and live for him there. You know, you can dive into the water and go down and see what's under water and explore it, but you can't stay down there very long unless you have some oxygen. And if you're going to go into the world, you better be fed with that spiritual oxygen that comes from the things you see spiritually and the things you hear spiritually and what you do with your time. I said I gave a number of goals earlier. Here's one that has to do with our eyes and our ears. Spend as many hours studying your Bible, praying, and going to church as watching television. Now, I must say, I think that's going to be a great deal harder for you to do. First goal isn't so hard. We're not much of a reading people anymore. It's one of our problems. But it's really not so hard to read a Christian book for every secular book. As a matter of fact, in my own experience, I have to work it the other way. I get so many Christian books, they, they just pile up on me. I, actually, they're, they're feet deep of books that I ought to read. I, I read all the time. Every time I take a trip somewhere on an airplane, I read one book coming out, another book coming back, and, and if I have any time off, that's what I do, and I read at night and so forth. I'm working through them as fast as I can, but my problem is balancing them with some secular books to kind of give me a sense of what's going on out there. I have to work at that. And I don't think that thing is so difficult. But you see, if you say, spend as many hours studying your Bible, praying, and going to church as watching television, that is difficult. How many hours do people watch television? They tell us the average person watches five hours of television every day. How many Christians in America do you suppose spend five hours on Christian activities all wrapped up together, Bible study, prayer, going to church, everything in a week? Not very many, you see. And should we be surprised that the church is as secular as it is and we've lost any sense of godliness? Let's talk about our tongues. The Bible says a lot about our tongues. I came across a book this week that I was reviewing in preparation for this. It had an appendix to it with page after page of what the Bible has to say about the tongue. What we know best, of course, is James 3, 5 and 6. The tongue is a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole person, Sets the whole course of his life on fire and is itself set on fire by hell. That's pretty strong language. And he's writing to Christians. James well recognizes that we can use our tongues for good, but he also recognizes the damage they can do. And you don't have to be a Hitler to do damage with your tongue, to stir up a whole nation and plunge the world into war. All you have to do is gossip a bit, shade the truth a bit, express your jealousy of somebody else by cutting remarks and so forth. All of that will suffice. Well, what you need to do is learn to use your tongue to praise and serve God. One thing you should do with your tongue is recite scripture with it. You have to memorize scripture in order to recite it, but you ought to do that. You see, it's not just meditating, keeping it in our mind. When we actually get it out on our tongues and verbalize it, then the sound that we hear in our ears or our own voice reciting the scripture reinforces it, and it becomes more a part of us than it ever was before. What about worship? Worship. We praise God with our tongues. We sing hymns and spiritual songs to him. We're told to do that in the Bible. And above all, we should use our tongue to testify to Jesus Christ, to speak of his grace. So here's another goal. Use your tongue as much to tell others about Jesus as for idle conversation. How about our hands and our feet? The Bible has a lot to say about our hands and our feet. 1 Thessalonians 4, 11 and 12, there Paul is talking about working with our hands so that we will be self-supporting and not dependent on anybody. What he says is this, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your hands just as we told you. That was a part of his teaching. Get busy, work, do something useful is what he told them, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. That's its biblical principle. Christians should work so they're not dependent on other people. Welfare, for example. I've done some thinking about our society, and I'm tempted to, to sort of categorize people in our day in this way. I think there are two main categories. There are those who are builders and those who are wreckers. Those who are building up, those who are tearing down. But in each case, you have two categories. In the building category, you have those who are entrepreneurs. They're at the top of the system. They're creative. They're devising new businesses, new ways to serve, and so forth. We're glad to have people like that. America has been blessed by many of them. And then you have builders that are not entrepreneurs. They don't have that spirit, but they're steady people, and they get in there and work, and and they're the ones that keep the businesses going. They're the company people in the best sense. and They're good, you see. Then there are the wreckers, and there are two kinds of that. They're the ones that are deliberately and openly destructive, and when you live in the city, you're very well aware of that. You walk down the streets, all the broken glass from people go around smashing windows and breaking into cars, and you look at the walls, and there's graffiti on them. It's just wanton destruction with no purpose at all, and today that's descended even to the point of people taking life for no reason at all, murders every single night. And then there are the wreckers, who are wreckers not in that sense, but People who just aren't contributing anything. They're drifting. They're living off the system. They don't offer anything. They they just receive. See, and what Paul is saying here is one reason we should work is that we might move out of that category and up to where we actually become productive. Here's another thing about our hands, Ephesians 4.28 He who has been stealing must steal no longer. There was somebody using their hands all right, but in the wrong way. But he said you must work doing something useful with your hands in order that you might have something to share with those in need. He says there another reason why you should use your hands constructively is not just to get wealthy or make a company advance, but that out of the resources that you therefore have, you might be able to help other people because not everybody can help themselves. You see how important, how practical... All of this is what we do with our hands, and we actually give them to Jesus Christ. As far as our feet go, well, he's talked about that in Romans 10. He said people need to hear the gospel, and if they're going to hear the gospel, somebody has to tell them, and in order to tell them, they have to be sent. As it's written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. All right, ask it in a practical way. What are you doing with your hands, and where are your feet taking you? Are your feet taking you to places where the Lord Jesus Christ is denied and blasphemed? And do you enter into that? Are you going to places where sin is openly practiced? Are you spending your free time loitering in the singles bars and the clubs of the city? You won't grow in godliness there. On the contrary, what will happen is that you'll fall into ungodly conduct. So let your feet carry you into the company of those who serve and love God, or if you do go into the world, go into the world in order to bear a witness, both by word and action for Jesus Christ. So here's another goal, final one. For every special secular function you attend, determine to attend a Christian function also, and when you attend a secular function, do so as a witness by word and action for the Lord Jesus Christ, present your bodies. Now there's a third word that Paul uses here, and it's also important, and it's the word holy present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy unto God. This is something that any sacrifice must be. A sacrifice has to be holy. In what sense? Well, it has to be without spot and blemish, and it has to be given holy to God. The worshiper didn't give part of the animal and keep the other half. He gave it all, and it had to be an animal without blemish and without spot. Now, if that is true in the ancient system of the animals, how much more true Must it be of us who have been purchased not with silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ? Peter, who gives us that verse in the first chapter of his first letter, says also, But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do, because it's written, Be holy, for I am holy. And the author of Hebrews said, Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Now that's the very heart of what we're talking about when we're talking about giving ourselves to God as living sacrifices. What's involved there is consecration, and what is consecrated is what is holy. Those are almost synonymous terms, and so what Paul is saying here is that you have to be concerned with holiness, and when you present yourself to God, it must be as a holy sacrifice. Let me say that that's where all of this has been heading, of course. It's where Romans has been heading. Hadley Moole is one of the great commentators, and he deals with that at some length at this point. He says that we have to realize that this is where the epistle has been going all along. Holiness is the aim and issue of the entire gospel. I have to say, do it in the form of a question, is there any subject, any matter of Christianity or Christian doctrine that's important to the scriptures, that is more widely neglected by the evangelical church in America today than holiness. I don't think so. We are not greatly concerned with holiness in our day, and yet that was not true in the past. In the past, anybody who dared to call himself or herself a Christian was very much concerned with holiness, how the life was actually lived and what was going on inside. J.I. Packer has written a book called Rediscovering Holiness, and in the very first chapter, he calls attention to that. He calls it the forgotten doctrine of our age. But he, he looks at the past. He said the Puritans were very concerned with holiness. They insisted that all of life and all relationships must become holy to the Lord. And Wesley told the world that God had raised up Methodism to spread scriptural holiness throughout the land. Then he lists the names of people who are known for their teaching about holiness. Phoebe Palmer, Handley Mool, Andrew Murray, Jesse Penn Lewis, F.B. Meyer, Oswald Chambers, Horatio Bonar, Amy Carmichael, L.B. Maxwell, and others. He goes on for several paragraphs. Well, today, holiness is largely forgotten as anything desirable among Christians. We don't try to be holy. We hardly know what it means, and we certainly don't seek it in other people. Robert Murray McShane, Great revival preacher and a pastor said on one occasion, My people's greatest need is my personal holiness. But is that what pulpit committees look for today when they're hunting for a pastor? Hardly. They look instead for a winsome personality, a skilled communicator, a good administrator, and other such essentially secular things. Or how about ourselves? Is that what we're concerned about? Do we buy books? holiness, Do we seek out tapes or messages on holiness? Do we attend seminars, the object of which is to help us draw closer to God? No, we don't. We look for self-help kind of things that are going to make us wealthy and wise. And so we go to seminars on things like how to be happy, how to raise our children, how to have a good sex life, how to succeed in business, and so on. Fortunately, this is a lack that's begun to be noticed by evangelical leaders today, and I have recognized in the last few years that a number of books are beginning to appear on that. A book, of course, means that the person's also preaching on it in seminars and so on, and I think it's a very good sign. Packer's book is one, Rediscovering Holiness. There are others that I could mention. There's the great classic of J.C. Ryle, the bishop called Holiness. It's Nature, Hindrances, Difficulties, and Roots. Jerry Bridges wrote a book called The Pursuit of Holiness, and so on. Well, there's one more word, one that I want to end with. You know it if you're looking at the text. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. That's the word, pleasing to God. What's pleasing? The offering of ourself to him as a living sacrifice. That's what's pleasing to God. God is pleased by the sacrifice. Isn't that an amazing thing? God should be pleased. God, the holy, all-wise, powerful God of the universe, should be pleased with anything I can offer. You may notice, if you look at the text carefully, that the word pleasing is used twice in that first paragraph. It's exactly the same word in the Greek text. It's used once in the verse that we're studying, the matter of our sacrifice of ourselves being pleasing to God. And then it's occurs once at the very end about the will of God, which, when we discover it, is pleasing to us. I'm not at all surprised by the second of the two. Of course, it's got to be pleasing to us because God is the all-wise God, and he's a good God, and therefore what he wants and wills for me is good, and it's the best possible good because he's all-wise. I may not always understand it, and I may chafe against it, but if I really submit to it as a living sacrifice, I'll find it to be pleasing. No question about that. You see, the really astonishing thing is to think that the offer of myself to God, particularly the offer of my body, this dying physical body, to offer that to God should actually be pleasing to the great almighty God of the universe, and yet, so it is. You see, Jesus Christ said on one occasion when he was talking to his disciples, when you've done your best, just remember that you're still an unworthy servant. That was his word. But he also told the story, a parable of the man with the talents who used them, several men who used the talents, used them well, invested them. And at the end, when the master came back, what the master had to say to those servants was this, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your Lord. Or as it says in our text, come and share your master's happiness. Living for Christ may be hard to do. And in an increasingly secular society like ours, it's sometimes desperately hard to do. But it is worth doing, because one day we're going to stand before the God of the universe, going to stand before Jesus Christ, our Lord and Master, to whom we have offered up our bodies. And if we have done it, we're going to hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. Come, share your Master's happiness, and that will be enough. That'll make it all worthwhile. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the challenge to give ourselves to you, body, soul, and spirit, but above all our bodies. We pray that you'll teach us what we are to do individually in our lives this week as we attempt by your grace to carry out the instruction that is here in the text, and that as we do it, we might become increasingly like Jesus Christ, and that your blessing, the blessing of the Holy Spirit, might rest upon us. For Jesus' sake, amen.
0: Thanks for listening to this message from the Bible Study Hour, a listener-supported ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. The Alliance is a coalition of believers that hold to the historic creeds and confessions of the Reformed faith and who proclaim biblical doctrine in order to foster a reformed awakening in today's church. To learn more about the Alliance, select the appropriate link at thebiblestudyhour.org. Write to us at 600 Eden Road, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, 17601. Your financial support makes our broadcasting, publishing, online, and event ministries possible. Please consider making a gift at our websites by phone at one 800 or by mail. Canadian listeners can reach us at P.O. Box 24097 R.P.O. Josephine North Bay, Ontario P1B 0C7 Thank you for your prayers and gifts and for listening to the Bible Study Hour preparing you to think and act biblically.